Now on Documentary on News Talk, centenarian Joe Vazelski takes us on a personal journey through his first 30 years, the most turbulent of the 20th century in Eastern Europe, in No Ordinary Joe. Daniel will ins Maxim, dort sind wir sehr intim, dort küss ich alle Damen und, and so on and so that was Franz Lehar's Merry Widow. Oh, the most beautiful music, my mother's favorite. She had a lovely voice, she was always singing. I knew many, many songs. I was in October 101. As far as I know, I am the last person alive from the uprising. Many people are asking me, because my accent, how long are you in Ireland? And I can safely say longer than you. (laughs) I think I had a very happy childhood. I had a loving mother and a loving father. She was a Hungarian, the daughter of a very famous rabbi, very intelligent, big music lover, from a little town 30, 40 miles north of Budapest. My father grew up in a village in Slovakia. His mother died when he was six years old and he got a very bad stepmother. His father dispatched him as a 14-year-old with his sister to America. After 10 years, he came back. He spoke only Slovak, and my mother spoke only Hungarian. But those days, it was the same country. That was an arranged marriage. My brother, he was born in 1912, 1914. My father went to the First World War, fighting on the Italian front. Didn't want to talk to me about And I was disappointed that I didn't live those days. Didn't think I will have opportunity to see another World War. But... He got slightly injured, so he was discharged in 1917, and I was born in 1918. We had just a two-room flat. The toilets were outside on the corridor. Ludwig the Great, the Hungarian king, died in that house. There were about six more flats like ours. Some of them were German-speaking, some were Hungarian. So by the time I was nine years old, I spoke perfectly those three languages. The house was full of children. We were in the yard all day. Football, day and night. We broke a good few windows of people who lived on the... Trnava had about 3,000 Jewish families. Those days it had about 15,000 inhabitants. There were two Jewish communities. One was the Orthodox, 
very religious. Looking back, probably we gave more trouble to the Orthodox boys than the Christians. And we were teasing them because they were not allowed to cut the hair and so on. My brother, his school pal, was a member of the evangelical religion and they had a lovely hall. There was the first table tennis table in Trnava. So my brother took me to watch him. I might have been seven or eight. After two, three years, they recognized I am a talent. He was a very generous, really fantastic brother. I always wanted to do what he was doing, but he was shrewd. When he wanted that I leave him study, he said he has difficulties in finding on the map a certain city. Help me, have a look. It didn't exist and took me two hours to give up. <laughs> but he had peace. He was a fantastic lawn tennis player and one of the best Slovakian table tennis players. He was coaching me. One of my saddest memories is when I beat him in the final of the Slovak Open. I still think I should have let him win. I was 16, so he was already a senior medical student. He was very proud of me, but I did not jump. Uh, he thought he has it in his pocket. <laughs> I went to the secondary school in 1931. It was attached to a Jesuit seminarium. So my majority close friends, they were all Catholics. Our school was very sport-minded. We had our sport teacher, a former Hungarian Olympic gymnast. The poor fellow lost in the war one of the legs, but still used the equipment showing us the most difficult exercise. He was the best sport teacher ever. Those days I considered table tennis work and football entertainment. In the city promenade we played soccer, you know. The trees were the goalposts. Twice a week, Jews against Christians. Big matches, really. Whoever won it, they won it. The real trouble came in 33 when Hitler came to power in Germany. The bank, they were looking for a few people in 1937. So I went for a test. I was very lucky. I had a hobby, stenography. I won on the radio the National Stenography Competition. They brought the news which you have to stenograph. The president of the Republic, Dr. Edward Benesch, received today in the Prague Castle the Japanese ambassador. And so oh, that was very useful. Even during the war in the mountains, I was asked 
to take note of everybody which was said on this meetings. And I take notes now at the university. We had three branches in Bratislava. I would say from the 300 people who worked in our bank, 20 were Jewish. I was in the foreign exchange department. They used me for talking to the customers. Lovely old ladies came in every day to put 10 crown onto the saving book. And the bank loved that I soon knew every family member of them asking and so on. The fact that I was speaking the three languages made a big difference. In 1937, I was in the mountains and they rang me. You are on the team, when are you back? If I'm on the team, I'm back tomorrow. When I put on the shirt with the Slovak cross on it, oh, I thought, I really? We played against Hungary in Budapest. I was destroyed. They were very good. A few weeks later, we played Yugoslavia. There I was winning and I was captain of the team. There was a Slovak national party in the opposition called Hlinkova Ludova Strana, which always had anti-Semitism on their program. They had the same program as Hitler. I mean, not destruction of Jews, just... They were also anti-Czechs. There was never talk about a Slovakia. Just they would have been very happy with bigger autonomy for the Slovaks. You know, in 1938 was the Munich Agreement where uh, Hitler took the Sudetenland. The next day after Munich, Hitler already sent a fellow called Frank to see Monsignor Tissot of the National Party. This is the great opportunity for you Slovaks to get away from the Czechs, more than they ever expected to achieve. So naturally, they accepted. Hitler took the Czech lands, called it the Bohemian Protectorate, and we had a Slovakian Republic under the guarantee of the Führer. And then came the anti-Jewish legislation in 1939, and President Tiso issued a few exceptions for people who are important for the economy of Slovakia. Then you didn't have to wear a yellow star, you could work, but a Jew could not earn more than 1,500 crown a month. My salary those days was 1,100, and the bank immediately started to pay me 1,500. Another three Jewish fellows in the bank, they also had the exception. 
only when I went for a weekend to Trnava where everybody knew me. I just put on the star, which didn't bother me. But in Bratislava, I never wore it. 1942 it was, that's when the transport started. They were the first transports to Oswiecim. The people who worked in the Jewish office, they more people they can mobilize, the safer they felt. They got a promise, you just organize these things, you will be safe. But those days they were talking about working camps for six months. If you would have seen the people who were going to be transported, they bought shoes for work and so on. Even in Auschwitz, over the gate is Arbeit macht frei, work make you free. Quite frankly, we didn't have any news. There were rumors that some people were shot, but until Alfred Wetzler escaped from Auschwitz and told us what's happening, we actually didn't. I saw them about three days before they were transported, my parents. Then I saw them pushed into the cattle truck. I am just amazed that not more people died on the way because there were 60 or 80 people into each of the... The last word which my mother told me change your religion. The very last word. My father was 58, my mom was 56. My brother was exactly 30. I never met his wife. He knew her only about three months. They were married about four weeks. He was the head doctor of uh, tuberculosis hospital in the mountains. He was looking after children, and the father of one of the children was one of the organizers of transport from there. So my brother went to him and told him that the new minister of health is his good friend and colleague. And if he could get in touch with him, that he's sure he would save him from the deportation. Okay, go and I give you three days to fix it. That night when my brother came to Bratislava, the minister for health had a car accident and got killed. Next day, my brother came to me to the bank I was delighted to see him, although I had no doubt that as a leading doctor he will not be transported. There was such a shortage of doctors those days. Anyhow, he came to ask me for an advice. And I told him, Hugo, you have to go back. You are married only a few weeks and you just can't leave her there on her own. 
He went back and that was the end. But I got a card from him, from Auschwitz, that I did not keep that card. I just... Oh, they have a very nice flat and we have also a bathroom and he underlined the bathroom that means the place where they were gassed. After the war, a Jewish fellow came to visit me. He said he saw my brother digging his own grave and he was shot then and he fell into the grave. My typist in the bank was Kathleen. Well, she was a very cheeky girl. 42 it was. I was already in charge of the foreign currency department. Those days, Jewish people were escaping, mostly to the States, and I was able to get dollars for them. I remember I had there on my desk an application for one of the clients. Miss Laszlo, here is the application. I already spoke to Mr. Bartos in the central bank. He will just put his thing on it. Listen, you are making money out of this, so why don't you go yourself? Kathleen was a friend of my girlfriend, Anna. We knew each other about a year or so. She was on the list. We got engaged. Uh, just that there should be some little bit of hope that it can save her. Didn't make any difference. She left all her valuables with Kathleen. I went to see them marching to the station and I saw Anna. She saw me there in the crowd and I told her, you are going to work. I came back to the bank, sat down at my desk and started to cry. Kathleen came to me and she said, don't worry, I will look after you. And from that moment on, Every week she brought me fresh baked bread and a lot of fruit from her huge garden. Kathleen came from a very exclusive Hungarian family. Her father was head of the Calvinist community, a retired station master. His big business was to export to Prague the first strawberries of the season. In 1943, the government brought out a list of politically unreliable people. To my biggest surprise, I was on the list about third of 20 people, enemies of the homeland. Why was on the list? I have no idea. Until then, I didn't do anything. I mean, because I was one of the very few Jews in a good employment. I don't know. 
Anyhow, the bank said, this is very bad, be careful. We are transferring you immediately to Budapest. They just wanted me out of the country until they fixed the thing. Fixing meant bribing. Anyhow, next morning I was already sitting in the train when my wife appeared at the station, knocked on the window. I was a little bit nervous that I followed or something. Come out. Is it important? Very important. So I come out for a second and she says, behave when you are in Budapest. That was the important thing. (laughs) You're listening to No Ordinary Joe on Documentary on News Talk. 43, we felt a very good year. Not a single transport. After Stalingrad, they stopped transport. We thought everything is finished. Who survived, survived. And in our bank, in the head office, out of the 150 who worked there, there were at least 20 very strong German nationalists who came to the office every day with Hackenkreuz. They greeted Heil Hitler. The Slovak ultra-nationalists, they had a greeting, Nastraž, be ready, or, yes. There were three or four Jewish people who were in leading positions in the bank. And uh, when I joined the uprising in August 44, they were still in their jobs. But on a job I came back in October, and to my biggest surprise, there was an extra transport, and my Jewish colleagues were taken. The leading people of the uprising, really, they were very brave to meet in our bank nearly every afternoon, always after closing hours. The Germans must have had some inkling that something is happening, but no. I got into the middle of those negotiations because I was a stenographer. Then I was used for negotiations with the financial part of the uprising because everybody had some different tasks to do. The leading politicians, they were in touch with the Russians, let them know what we are planning. So the Russians gave strict instructions not to start anything until they reach Krakow in Poland. But we were so much advanced that we couldn't wait. I was in the bank till the day that I took the train to Banska Bystrica, which was selected as the center of the uprising. Everything was prepared. Two divisions of the Slovak army were transferred to Banska Bystrica together with a lot of partisans. Those divisions which were transferred 
They actually didn't know why they are transferred. Now these boys will be fighting the Germans, the others fighting the Russians. The heads of the army. By that time they knew Germany lost the war. Their situation will be very difficult after the war because they supported the fascistic government for four years. So this was now a great opportunity for people. Once you were involved in the uprising or fought in the uprising, that's enough to give you a clean sheet. I was again a member of the leading uh, uprising thing. So we had meeting every day. But uh, once the real fight started, by middle of September, we were completely defeated. Because we had then 50,000 soldiers against 150,000 Germans. Therefore, everybody going to fight against Germans went up to the mountains and continued the fight there. Around Banska Bistica, there are very big forests and mountains. Later, slowly, we moved towards the Carpathian Mountains. Everybody of us had a rifle. We had little bombs, each of us, to throw. The boys were using it for fishing. Just throw the hand grenades into the river and all that were big meals of fish. Unfortunately, the boys were not careful and one lost his hand. The local people there, although many of their family members were fighting with us, we robbed them of all the food. We had no other way to keep alive. In the end, our own little farmers were more afraid of us than of the Germans. We slept in the forest, and when the winter came, we dug our tunnels in the snow. You have no idea, the snow, it keeps the heat. It wasn't comfortable, but everybody had only one aim by that time, to survive. I must tell you one thing, I was a spoiled brat by my parents. I always had sore throat and cold. From the moment I joined in the mountains, I never had one hour sickness. Every week or so, we got the Germans are coming. We threw hand grenade and we were shooting. We lost a lot of nice boys there, really. Once at one of the big battles, the Germans took me. I knew that's my end. And the lieutenant who was picked to accompany me halfway to the headquarters, about six miles from where the battle finished, asked me, what's my name, Joe? What's your name? Johnny. Johnny? That's not German. I am half German, half French, from Strasbourg. 
So I ask you whether he realizes that the Germans lost the war and they won't be very happy with him at home. So what shall I do? Come with me to the mountains and after the war you will be a hero. He was one of the best fighters we ever had. One morning the Russian colonel said he needs a volunteer. A Russian partisan was dropped in the wrong mountains. He was dropped in the small Carpathians, only about 10 miles from Bratislava. Those days, I had no doubt that I won't survive the war. No doubt that sooner or later they'll get me and kill me. And I wanted to see my future wife in Bratislava, so I volunteered. They dropped me in a city called Rujomberok. From there I would have to travel by train, and I needed a travel permit. I had a choice, either to go to the Slovak police or to the Gestapo. I went to the Gestapo. On the office door, there was Anne-Marie Vesely. You know, we are nearly related. Oh, Vizov, you are Vesely and I am Veselsky. She had a good laugh. I chatted her up for half an hour and let's go down to business. Shall I give you a repeat journeys? Thank you very much. Doesn't mean I won't visit you every time I hear around. Oh, that's very nice, very good. Best of luck. Everything went very well. We arrived to Bratislava. I walked through and then I walked to my girlfriend. Naturally, she was thrilled. But she said, you know, I am just one day at home. I was three weeks in jail and threatened every morning that she will be hanged. Because stupidly I sent her a letter by somebody going to Bratislava and the lady went straight to the police. So she found me a lodgement in her house, a storeroom for fruit. She said, that's very safe. I told her, I'm sorry, I know you were now in jail, but you must do a few jobs for me. So after two, three days, the Russian was brought to the house in a luxury car with Slovak army flag on top of it so that nobody stops them. On the way to the mountains, I told him he can't talk. So when we were in the train, two, three people tried to speak to him. Listen, the poor fellow is deaf and dumb. Where are you taking him? To the hospital in Rujomberg. We walked another 20 miles that day and there we were picked up. But uh, he was very nice. About half a year later, I heard that the first or second day that he was back on the front that he was killed. I was again a stenographer at a meeting in Košice. I saw bottles of champagne being opened, so boys, that's that. We knew already a few weeks before that Hitler took his life.
I saw hundreds and hundreds of dead people and some of my friends and comrades, but Janko Bieli, he was a mad soccer follower and sport was his life. His mother was a very good friend of my mother and everybody those days who was anti-German wanted to go to the partisans. His mother begged me to look after him and I promised. So I took him with me to the uprising and when we arrived in the mountains, he wanted immediately to go fighting. Listen. You are not going to do anything without my permission. I promised to your mother. And I looked after him all the time. He was involved in a few fights and he did very well and he was very tough. So the war was over, we were returning and because all the high-ranking officers got killed and got killed and again got killed. One of them even changed sides and went to the Germans. I was the leader of this group. Not promoted, just surviving. And I issued strict instructions to get rid of every arm. We are not anymore soldiers. And my little friend insisted that he would love to bring home as a souvenir his, the rifle was his girlfriend. So we stopped at a little hotel where I always stayed and we got such a welcome. There was big celebration and he was one of the... Oh, and we were very, very happy. And he was sitting there like this, leaning at his gun, and the bullet came through his throat and killed him. For us, it was over about March 45. They were meetings in Košice. The Russians took a good part of Czechoslovakia away, and I was working there with the organizers of the uprising. Two or three of them were employees of the bank. Dr. Scholtes, Dr. Poole, Gustav Husak, Later he became president of Czechoslovak Republic. I became the same time president of the Irish Table Tennis Association. I think I did better. <laughs> but uh, they were there already in Kosice, establishing the new Czechoslovakian Republic. They used me because I was so much younger than them as a secretary. Jan Pool became the Minister for Industry and Commerce. That time, all I wanted is to get back to the bank because I had a great time in the bank. So then Dr. Pool said, no, you are not going to the bank. You will be my private secretary. So 
we had in Bratislava every ministry which was in Prague. We decided about Slovakian affairs. Naturally, the decision about the whole republic was made in Prague. I came back from the front 1st of May, 45, and we married 19th of May. First, my wife had a lovely house. We lived there. Her mother moved to her sister, a Jew in our family. Her father was dead already. Then I became private secretary, and they had a beautiful apartment house. There were already six colleagues from the ministry living there, and there was a very nice three-bedroom apartment available. So we moved there, and we were very happy there. Oh, listen to me. We only kissed each other 50 times a day. All the time we were giggling, we didn't take seriously. Say we were at some party. I loved flirting and her very good girlfriends. Look what Joe is doing. You don't mind that? Not at all. He just should build up his appetite, but he will eat at home. Stephen was born March 46 and Katushka in December 47. Unfortunately, when we planned to escape, it was a big danger to move because they were all colleagues who were watching each other, you know. Uh, after the war, I started to play, and then I became captain of the national team. Uh, the Czechoslovakian Association did not allow us to play under the name of Slovakia. There is only Czechoslovakia. They agreed that we could figure as Czechoslovakia B under my captaincy. We beat France in Paris 5-0 in the European Cup. We were drawn against Yugoslavia in the semi-final. But uh, in uh, Yugoslavia, in charge was still Marshal Tito. He was a big figure during the war, a big ally of the Russians. But the Russians sent over to him 300 Russian advisors. Advisors, they were probably spies. After a couple of years, he kicked them out. He is just as good communist as anybody in Russia, but he is a national communist for the better of the Yugoslavian people, not an international communist. So, for the first time, the Russians were nervous about this new movement of Marshal Tito. I know because they came Russians to Czechoslovakia to warn us that the Russians will move in if we try to do something like Marshal Tito. From that moment on, everything was closed. No possibility to travel anywhere else. But we were drawn against Yugoslavia, so 
I had good connections in Prague. I pleaded, if we don't go to Zagreb next week, we will be just crossed out, eliminated. We have such a big chance to win the European Cup. We got permission, but when we came to the Yugoslav border, there wasn't a passenger crossing the border already for weeks. We have to go, you know, we are playing your country. They wouldn't be pleased with you if you don't let us through. When is the match? The day after tomorrow. Where are you going to stay? I hope we find some little place to stay for the team. Yes, we look after you, but we have a table tennis club. You have to play against us. Yes, with pleasure. Next day we played them, they fed us, they brought us with cars to Zagreb, and then we beat them, the Yugoslavs, 5-3, although they were a very top team those days. The next morning, big article, front page, Czechoslovakian team got great welcome in Zagreb. Marshal Tito is making a big meal out of it. Look, there are people in Czechoslovakia who like our idea. Look, they didn't like it in Bratislava. And two weeks later, March 48, political security came to our flat and took it to pieces. And then we reached the final against the Czechs in Prague, whose number one was the reigning world champion. We beat the Czechs, the biggest result ever of Slovakian sport. So we were big heroes. It wasn't actually KGB, but Slovak KGB, who always had a Russian advisor. Where is your husband? Show us some correspondence. After this happened, I came home. She was in a terrible state. And that night we decided the following day we leave. While I was private secretary, I did some favors to the Swiss embassy. So I immediately rang the ambassador that I need a visa to Switzerland. He explained to me it's no good to give it to me in Bratislava because you have to pass the Czechoslovakian border. They will be immediately suspicious, a whole family leaving. So your visa will be tomorrow lying on the Swiss embassy in Budapest. It was very easy from Bratislava to go to Budapest. Both are communist countries. You didn't need any visa. But uh, on both sides of the apartment, there were colleagues. One of them was very nosy, but my wife, she was always very clever. She said, no difficulty. We call in the painters and we have to move out. We have to go somewhere. I hope the painters won't make a big mess here, so forgive us. So where are you going to visit her mother? When will you be back? Two weeks or so. We just went to the station, didn't take anything with us. We had two little children, you know. We were very lucky because one of the 
customs man on the board, uh, knew me very well as a table tennis player. He was also a player. And so when we came to Budapest, we just went up to them, but we got our Swiss visa. Naturally, we were very nervous to travel through the whole of Austria, which was occupied by Russian troops. We had at least three or four controls. And the first thing when we arrived to Zurich was that we went to the Australian embassy there and applied for the landing permit. That's where we wanted to go when we left. So they said it will take a few weeks. Five months we were in Zurich, still no sign. And one day I was walking in Bahnhofstrasse and I met a gentleman from Bratislava whom I knew very well. I did him one or two favors while I was on the ministry and he didn't know how to behave because he didn't know that I'm officially there still representing. He already escaped a year before. I said, we are waiting for the Australian landing permit. But why here? This is the most expensive city in Europe. Have you so much money? We have no money. Listen, come to Ireland. I have a firm in Ireland. I will look after you and the Czechoslovakian ambassador in Dublin. He's a very good friend of ours. Within two weeks, we got an Irish visa. But before that, he took me to Dublin, showed me around in Dublin, and I liked it very much, really. He owned the Cabra Garage. It was a garage and machine and tool factory, all run by Slovaks. Come join us, you can work in the garage selling petrol and so on. So I came back and I said, not only we are going, we have already a house. Mrs. Ruzicka, the wife of the ambassador, found it for us. So we flew Zurich Shannon. The ambassador picked us up, brought us to Dublin. Kathleen loved it. And she loves the Irish climate. We lived in the house for five years, renting number four. When the number five came up for sale, we bought the next door house and we are still living there. No Ordinary Joe was recounted by Joe Vizelski. It was recorded, produced and edited by Eamon Little, with editing assistance from Ted Little. Sound mixing was by Alan Kelly. The documentary was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee.